And since Chris got an advertisement for his Sunday school class, I get one too. Um, no, we have a ladies' class beginning next Sunday morning at 9.15. We also have a men's class. They will run simultaneous. Um, I am teaching the men's class, and I want to encourage any of you men, uh, if you go to Craig's class or you're dedicated someplace else, feel free to go there. But if you um, are not uh, currently in a Sunday school class, you haven't been coming to Sunday school, I want to challenge you men that uh, we're going to have a men's class. Uh, I can tell you the basics of it. We're going to deal with character. That's going to be the first thing that we're going to deal with. We'll spend uh, quite a bit of time looking at character. It is what the Bible uh, commands of us. It is king. If I'm going to put a, a term on it in our lives, the Bible makes it clear that we are to be men of character. Uh, we'll deal with various issues dealing with that. The second thing we're going to deal with is accountability, because all of us need someone that will tell us the truth about ourselves. And so those are the first two subjects. How far we get, I have no clue. We have a lot of other things we're going to cover, but those two things. So please, by all means, if you're not engaged in a Sunday school class as a guy, please um, be a part of that. And the wives, if your husband comes to that, go to the ladies' class. Bev, what's up? They, yes, they did. They, you got in a little bit late. But yes, immediately after the service, if you go downstairs, there'll be some light refreshments and uh, reception for uh, Jason and Ann as they continue on. I don't know what we're going to do, Jason. Some of you know Jason's been mooching pizza off of the pastor for the last probably, what, five, six years? I don't know. Maybe longer than that, so we kind of half adopted him on Sundays. But uh, then some girl comes along, and all of a sudden he's gone. So I don't, I don't know how you deal with that. So, but anyway, so anyway, it gives more pizza for the rest of us at Sunday lunchtime. Yeah, now, and we used to make him go get it. He had to go down to Pizza Hut and pick it up. We'd like, that's his cost. But uh, anyhow, uh, we'll have to go get it ourselves now. But anyway, enough of the nonsense. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to uh, Matthew chapter 6. Now, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6 and many other passages, but Matthew chapter 6 is the one that I'll return to uh, several times as we look at this. It's very interesting that uh, Mike Crick, when he was praying for Jason, also prayed for Jim Nagel as he is going to be heading to Nigeria. Because as you see back here, you go, what's that have to do with Nigeria? Well, the word there, by the way, how many of you have ever heard the term chrislam before? Uh, boy, about a handful of people, that's about it. Uh, it's a real term, it's a real religion, and it is in Nigeria. As most of you know, Mike uh, insinuated in his prayer that there is upheaval there, and if you watch the news, you know there is upheaval there. Uh, about half the country is Muslim, the other half is Christian of some sort, uh, and uh, they constantly are at each other's throats. Um, bands of people will go through town with machetes and just start hacking people up, uh, those types of things. And in that um, circumstance, uh, there are a couple of people who have made it their, their uh, life's goal to mix together Christianity and Islam, because they believe it's going to bring peace. 
I have to tell you, I've called the sermon this morning irreconcilable differences because absolutely there is no way that can happen. Islam and Christianity are not compatible. Uh, do they have some things that are similar? The answer is, of course, they do. So do most other religions and cults in this world. Almost every cult, almost every religion, some way, shape, or form, acknowledges the Lord Jesus Christ. But they don't acknowledge him as the Lord Jesus Christ the way we do. He's just another great prophet or a great teacher or some other entity. They also acknowledge this, the word of God. The Bible has truth in it, but it is not the final authority. Uh, Israel, uh, I'm sorry, Islam does that also. In the United States, uh, the word Christendom has been thrown around. People have lost their TV programs because of this word, because of naming names and doing all kinds of things. Uh, but it is not the religion that is in uh, Nigeria. It is a trend or a movement. Just like there have been talks between Protestant churches and the Catholic Church and other entities to try to bring reconciliation and all those kinds of things, there are groups of people in the United States that are trying to reconcile the two. I propose to you this morning, and I believe you'll figure out why I say this uh, by the time it's over, that there are irreconcilable differences. In fact, is I'm going to do something. This is not planned, but let me go to my very last slide. Whoop, I went past the last slide. This is the bottom line. Just in case you know how I get, I get out of sermon time before I get out of sermon. Here's the end of the sermon. If you do love Muslims for whom Christ died, then you will preach the gospel to them as the Apostle Paul did to the Jews. You will not join them in their blindness. And unfortunately, when you try to mix two things together that do not mix you land up in the lowest common denominator. In fact, there's everything I could research. I found out that uh, Islam hasn't changed a bit in this whole trend or um, movement, or Chrislam hasn't changed a bit. But those that claim to be Christians have compromised in every way, shape, or form. Truth of the matter is, the Apostle Paul was a Jew. He ministered to Jewish people, and he never once said, you know what, I'm going to join the Jewish people so that somehow or the other I can bring a compromise and get rid of persecution and all kinds of other things. Never did that. He simply said, we have the truth. The truth is that God loves us. God sent Jesus Christ, and he willingly came to die on the cross for the sins of the whole world, including Jews and Gentiles, so that they could all have the light. He preached a gospel that took people from darkness into light. If the lights go out, I'm going to keep my mouth is big enough to keep going. So, uh, but um, they flickered in the first service, too, a couple of times. So we're in good shape. But there's always the light that the Apostle Paul brought, and that's what we need to do. Compromise will not bring peace. In fact, there's one of the things that's being thrown around is that Christians need to apologize to Muslims because of the war on terror. Well, guess what? The war on terror has nothing to do with the religious group. 
just happens to be that these days many of the terrorists come from some kind of Islamic background, but it's a government policy against people coming from another country that are uncontrolled. It has nothing to do with Christianity taking up arms against Muslims. That is a government thing. God has given governments the responsibility to protect its people. It doesn't have to do with this. And so religious compromise will not solve any of these problems. In fact is, it will simply muddy the water and bring blindness in all directions. We need to know what we believe. We need to know where we stand and how to answer those that say, well, if you're not a part of this and you don't do what we do, then you really don't love Muslims. The answer is, if you love Muslims, you will be a part of what we do here at Garden Chapel, and hopefully you do as an individual. And that is, be a part with your time, your money, your mouth, whatever it takes, your, your whole being, to get the gospel out. Jim Nagel is in Nigeria. One of, the th one of the generators that he'll be working on is going, our, the generator that this church sent, actually, is to help start a school that people will be taught the basics of Christianity and get a regular education on top of that. Many other hospitals and uh, institutions where he's working on their power plants, their generators, will have the opportunity to be a light like Robin was singing of so people can see the truth. But you do not send light by compromising it any more than you put a bushel over the light, a shade over the light uh, to cover it and hope that you're going to make a difference. All it does is put everybody in darkness. And so, as we look at irreconcilable differences today, let's look at a few things that are happening in the world around us. Have any of you seen the signs or the bumper stickers, or you've heard people say, Islam means peace? I've seen them. You, you look around. Islam does not mean peace. Islam means surrender or submission to Allah. It has nothing to do with peace one way or the other. It has nothing to do with that. But Islam is presented to the world by them as God's final message. They would say that, yes, God has spoken in the past. He has spoken through the prophets like Abraham and Moses and others. Uh, they would acknowledge David and the apostle Paul. Oh, and Jesus was, an, was a prophet also. The only problem is they see the Lord Jesus Christ as just one of the prophets and not even the greatest of the prophets because to them, and according to everything that they teach, Muhammad is the one who is the last prophet and the final prophet, and he alone is the one that God gave the final authority or the final writing, and that's the Quran. But Islam is supposedly codifying, bringing, and consolidating, and purifying all the messages that God has given in the past into Islam. They believe they are the one world religion and that everyone, if we do everything right, everyone will be eventually submitting to Allah. And uh, they have done a lot and they are willing from the very beginning to use force if necessary to spread their message. They do indeed agree that the Bible is God's word but not the way you do. 
I sure hope it's not the way you do, because they believe it was God's word. But it got corrupted, and it wasn't complete, and the Quran is that which gets rid of the corrupted parts and also uh, completes it. I, along with, I think, one other person in this congregation, maybe somebody else did, I actually forced myself uh, one vacation. took me a week to do it. I forced myself to read the Quran. And when I say that, I'm not joking. I voluntarily started. But by Saturday of vacation, I had to force myself to finish it because I found it to be so confusing, so redundant, so boring, so just ununderstandable. Uh, only because I knew what the Bible said did some of the things make sense. For example, you will find in the same context, insinuating that they were all at the same time, Moses and Abraham and Jesus and the Apostle Paul all lumped together in one, one of their verses and acting like they all existed at the same time. And it's just not true. And indeed, Jesus is mentioned uh, in the Quran 25 times. But I propose to you, is it the Jesus of the New Testament or even the Jesus that is referred to ahead of time as the Messiah in the Old Testament? I propose to you, he is not. And I'll show you that in a little while. Uh, in Chrysalam, as in Nigeria, if they are criticized because of what they're doing, they just say, well, look, here's what we're doing. We have similar teachings on morals and ethics, and they usually go to a, a phrase that we all know. Um, when they asked Jesus, what is the great, greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And they say, well, in the Quran, it says things like that too. And it does. But guess what? Almost every major religion and cult says something along that line. But I propose to you, is the God that they're insinuating that we should worship and submit to the same one as the Word of God, the New and Old Testament? The answer is no, it is not the same God. Allah is not the God of the New Testament or the Old Testament. It is not, He is not the self existing Jehovah of the Word of God. They believe they're also fighting against the alternative religions and the secularism and atheism that is found in the world. And they're right. There is a lot of that going on. In Nigeria, the religion of Chrislam was founded in the 1980s. Uh, he claimed that an angel of God came to him. Sounds a whole lot like uh, Muhammad, because he believes an angel came and gave him that. The name of his denomination of Chrislam is the Will of God Mission. And uh, they, he is just waiting for the whole world to come to him. By the way, there are a total of 1,500 people, and that's it, that worship in Chrislam. So remember, but that word is being thrown around the United States as it's a religion. It is not. Remember, it's a movement and a trend in the United States. Uh, this first uh, denomination of Chrislam worships on Saturday. Christians traditionally worship on Sunday, and Muslims worship on Friday. So they made it in the middle, and uh, they use both the Bible and the Quran. But 
this man believes neither one of them is complete. Now, he is violating Christianity and Islam because he himself is writing another book that he says is going to put it all together and be the final one. So you can understand how this goes, and when he's done, somebody else will pick it up. It tends to be the smallest of those two denominations because it's very strict. It has a lot of commandments that deal with everything from your behavior to your morals to how you dress to what you eat, how you eat it, uh, your hygiene, your purity, you name it. It sounds a whole lot like Islam. The second movement as a part of Chrislam, it was only started in 1999. Uh, it's much uh, larger uh, after uh, Simon Seca made a pilgrimage to Mecca. He came back believing that he was inspired by God to make peace between the Christians and the Muslims, especially in Nigeria. And so he founded this religion in the hope that it would create peace between the peoples in Nigeria. It hasn't done that. In fact, is almost everyone, Muslims and Christians in Nigeria, totally reject this religion. As you can see, it's not very large. His is called the Mountain of Loosing Bondage. Uh, and they are very much like we would see a kind of a radical, charismatic church. They believe in miracles and healings and all kinds of stuff. And the people in Nigeria, if you've been listening to the news or Jim Nagel when he gives his reports, they're very poor. They have very little. And what they do have uh, gets lost because people are always fighting. And so they just are in really bad shape. And this gives them just a teeny-weeny bit of hope in that, that mess. They do worship on Sunday, but here's how they do it. They have a Muslim service first, then they have a Christian service, then they have a service mixing the two of them together. And you say, how in the world is this going to affect us? What's this have to do with the United States and the church here? I don't know if you caught it, but if you listened, uh, and I knew about it, I didn't know much about it until I started researching, but just June 26th of this year, there was an organization that promoted that Christian churches, and there were somewhere, nobody really knows how many, somewhere between 100 and 300 congregations in about 32 states that participate in this, where they encouraged the pastors of the church, the church leaders, to invite those from Islam and from Jewish uh, uh, temples to come in and participate in the services. They would have in their pew racks not only Bibles and hymn books, but also a copy of the Koran. And they would have an ayam come up and read from the Koran. And they had Sunday school curriculum that purported to show how Islam and Christianity were the same. And that went on on one particular Sunday. But they haven't stopped. There are other things that have been going on behind the scenes, and people who should know better have been involved in those types of things. And what they're doing is just creating a blurry mess. It does nothing. It does not promote the gospel of Christ. It does not bring peace. It simply does what the Bible says that we shouldn't do, is to compromise with those that do not believe the truths of the Word of God. The basic um, beliefs of Chrislam or this trend or movement are that the Bible and the Quran are both sacred text. Uh, they're equal, even though Islam doesn't believe that, and we don't believe that. 
They believe in their services and allowing their services. People pray to Allah and they pray to the God of the, the Bible or they might say praise God or praise Allah. Uh, didn't matter to them. They believe that Jesus is equal with the rest of the prophets. And, of course, the word of God uh, absolutely forbids us that. They sing Christian and Islamic hymns. I don't understand how in the world you could do that. They celebrate Ramadan as well as Easter and Christmas and all the other holidays. And instead of a cross or a crescent with a star in their churches, they have an altar like they believe Abraham had an altar. What they don't understand is that altar that Abraham had when he was going to offer uh, Isaac was a symbol, a foreshadow of what Jesus Christ would do for us. And so it's totally wrong. Do they come? Do they all go back to Abraham? They claim to. And all of them do believe in uh, evangelism because they believe the world should believe like they do. Now, as I already said, most people uh, do not agree with this system. Out of all of the United States, probably at most 300 churches participated a couple months ago. But we need to understand that not long ago, 600 A.D., there was one man in the middle of the desert who now has almost 2 billion followers. If you think things don't start small and get big, you would be wrong. We need to understand that we need to deal with things when they start or they simply get worse. Now, I'd like to look, and this is the main part of the sermon. This is the irreconcilable differences part of it. What are the problems with this Chrislam or the cooperation between Christians and Muslims? Where Where do we stand? What should we believe? How should we deal with this? What should be our mindset? What do we do when somebody comes up and says, well, if you're not willing to be a part of this, you're an unloving person. You don't love Muslims. How do you answer that? Well, when you look at where Islam comes from, and that's what I'm going to do very very quickly, I believe, we're going to look at the five pillars of Islam and look at how they compare with the scriptures. The first one has to do with submission. If any person is willing in the presence of of two witnesses publicly say there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet, they are officially a Muslim. That's how you become a Muslim. But notice what it says, that there is no God but Allah, so they're understanding that the God of the Bible is not the same one as Allah because Allah is not a word used of the God of the Bible, and that Muhammad is somebody who you can trust. In fact, is you need to trust what he has said if you're going to be right with God. On the other hand, the word of God in John chapter 14, verse 6 says this, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Jesus Christ made it very clear. He is the final authority. He is the means to come to God. Not Muhammad. Muhammad gets X'd out. In fact, is in Romans chapter 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, not Muhammad, I mean Allah as God and Muhammad his prophet, but Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Um, 
Islam doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, as I'll read a little later, they don't even believe he was crucified. That is one of those things they say absolutely never happened. And so if he was never crucified, his resurrection it would never happen either. But according to the word of God, the resurrection is a key thing in Christianity. Why? The resurrection is not what saved us. It's the death of Christ on the cross, his shed blood that saved us. That is what he used to pay for our sin. But the resurrection proves that God was satisfied with his payment for sin. See, he took the sins of the whole world on himself. And if there's one sin that wasn't paid for, one single sin that wasn't paid for, Jesus Christ could not have risen from the dead. The resurrection proves that his work was complete and God was satisfied. A holy, righteous God had been satisfied by the offering of Jesus Christ once for all time. The second pillar of uh, Islam is that they need to say prayers five times a day. If you've been to an Islamic country, you will know that they make sure you know when it's time. From the tops of the mosques, you will hear the call to prayer. I've been there. I was only there for uh, about a week. heard what it does. And uh, there are no excuses. And uh, you need to pray, and you need to pray toward Mecca. Uh, and it says uh, in the Quran, it simply says, hasten to the remembrance of Allah and leave your trading. In other words, whatever you are doing, you may stop what you're doing, and you need to pray. This is why I had you turn to Matthew chapter 6. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it very clear that if you are making a public display of your religion, I don't even like that word, but your faith, you are doing the wrong thing. In fact, as in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, it says, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. And he goes on to say, they have the reward in full. People look at that and say, oh, wow, how dedicated they are. Or whatever they say about them, how religious they are, how holy they are, whatever. But it says, when you pray, go into your inner room. And when you've shut your door, pray to your father in secret. That doesn't mean praying in public in church is wrong. But we're not praying for a show. In their case, they are making that. That is one thing they are commanded to do. It is evidence that you're a Muslim. It violates what the Scripture says. And one other thing, they have wrote prayers that they are required to pray. The passage simply goes on and says, Do not pray using meaningless repetition, as the Gentiles do, because they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Your father knows your needs before you ask. They violate the, the, the very pillars of Islam, violate the principles of the word of God. They are also required, pillar number three, to give compulsory alms. I have nothing against giving to people who are in need. I think all of us should be generous people. God has been generous with us. But we're not talking about... Do you want to? Have, is your heart right and you want to give because God has given to you? That's not Islam. Islam says it's legal. You must do that. Somewhere between 1.5% and 2% uh, of your income is to be given to poor people. That has nothing to do with tithes and offerings or anything like that. It's just above and beyond that. 
Again, Matthew chapter 6 addresses that. He says, don't practice your, this is verse 1, don't practice your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. But when you give alms, don't sound the trumpet. Don't, don't let it be known. It's not something that anybody else knows about. If you're giving to poor people, don't tell me. And, don't, and make sure you don't tell somebody else in the congregation, hey, look what I did. I like to help people. You know, I don't go around saying, oh, did you see who I helped this week? No, we're not supposed to do that. But in Islam, it's required that you must do that. Are we supposed to help people? The answer is absolutely we are. But we do it because God has put it on our heart. It is not for a public show. The fourth pillar of Islam is the fast of Ramadan. Um, I've talked to people who have lived there and people who uh, know a whole lot more about this than I. It is probably about as big a farce as you can get. Do they indeed not eat during daylight hours? By the way, the Quran is very specific of how you know what daylight hours are. If you took a black book like this and put a white thread across it, if you can see the white thread, it's still too light out. If it's dark enough that you can't see the white thread going across something that's black, then, then it's nighttime. And if it's nighttime, you can do anything you want. In fact, is people that have lived there and spent years there said, all night long, it's a party. Because they don't eat during the day, but they make up for it at nighttime. Uh, and that's just the way it is. It's not a fast. But again, it's a show. And they make a big deal of this. What does Matthew chapter 6, what does Jesus say? He says... When you fast, don't let anybody else know about it. I don't care if you fast and if, if God has put it on your heart to fast and you're going through something and you just want to abstain from food and just get your mind on Christ and what to do, please feel free. But guess what? Don't tell me about it. Well, you can tell me. I'm your pastor because people ask me questions about these things. But don't go around telling people and letting people know that you're fasting. Otherwise, you violated the whole thing because you're doing it for a show. And you get your reward because somebody else, as I said before, will say, oh, wow, they're pretty spiritual. They fast. I didn't fast. You know, that's not what we're supposed to do. He said, we do these things in secret. And then the last pillar, most people know about this one, is once in your lifetime, you need to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. Or if you can't do it, you can get somebody else to do it for you. This question was answered in John chapter 4. You might remember the story of the woman at the well. Uh, we're not looking at that whole picture of her and her need of salvation and all those kinds of things. But the woman said to Jesus in verse 19 of John chapter 4, he says, I perceive, perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you shall worship the Father. You worship that which you don't know. We worship that which we know. For salvation is from the Jew. But an hour is coming, and now is, so remember, that's present tense, now is that the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And verse 24 is the key. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Worship is not a place. It's not a time. It's not a building. 
It's not a mountain. It's not a temple. It's not a city, Mecca. It's none of those things. True worship is in spirit and based on truth. It's from the heart. Islam is absolutely not a heart religion. If you notice, these things are compulsory on people. But what does the Bible say? You know, what, what, where do we go? They say the Quran is the final, uncorrupted version of what God has to say to man. It's direct. It's binding. It's binding on all mankind, not just is, uh, um, Muslims. Uh, and that's why if there is a country where the majority of the people are Islamic, uh, they impo- try to impose Islamic law instead of civil government because they believe that the Quran is binding on all people, not just them. And so they believe in cultural matters and religion and civil matters. The, the Quran has the final answer. I guarantee you it does not. The word of God is very clear. That God gave us a final authority and it was not the Quran and it wasn't this new book that this guy is writing or some other book that somebody else is writing. It is the word of God. He said that the Holy Spirit is the one that moved people to write the scriptures. The scripture is complete. We know that from several places in the Bible. Don't have time to go into that. But here's what the Bible says. And you probably memorized this verse somewhere along the line. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for reproof, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It is adequate. It's sufficient. Nothing else is needed. The Quran violates what the Scripture says, which is nothing should be taken away from the Word of God, nor shall it be added. Every cult does that. Every false religion does that, even though they make some semblance of a token allegiance to the Word of God. They still add to it in one way or the other. What about their God? I mentioned before about the God of Islam. They believe God is one. By the way, we would say the same thing, except they stop there. God is absolute and only one. Allah. The Word of God tells us that God is shown to us, manifest to us, as a trinity, a triunity. One God manifests to us in three distinct persons. God the Father and God the Son, who is Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. They absolutely believe that that is heretical. They do not believe in the Trinity. And if you don't believe in the Trinity, that means you cannot believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. The verse that I would go to, and if you want to memorize a verse that works for most cults, it's straightforward. I'll do it real quickly. But in Matthew chapter 28, And 19 and 20, it says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. You may not catch it unless somebody's already pointed out. But notice it says Father and Son and Holy Spirit. In Greek, when it's linked together with an and, it simply means they are linked inseparably together. But it says name, and then it gives three names. 
You see, there is one God who is shown to us, manifest to us, as three persons. And yes, indeed, there is God the Father. They wouldn't have a problem with that part. But there is also God the Holy Spirit. And there is also God the Son, who is Jesus Christ. He is indeed God. The God of Islam is not a trinity, and Jesus Christ is not God. And by the way, Jehovah God from the Old Testament, I am that I am, is not Allah of the Koran uh, for so many different ways. The Lord Jesus Christ continuing on in that direction. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, it says this. And God the Father is speaking. He says, but of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So God the Father is calling God the Son, Jesus Christ, God. And verse 10, it goes on to say, and uh, God the Father is still talking, And thou, Lord, in the beginning thou didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. The rest of the Bible backs that up, that Jesus Christ was the one who created everything. Not Allah, and not even God the Father. He says that was the prerogative of God the Son. God the Father making that very clear in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. But what does the Quran say? I promised you I would quote this, and then I'm going to quit. But it says, simply says this in uh, the Quran. They slew him, referring to Jesus Christ, and they slew him, nor, uh, I'm sorry, they slew him not, nor crucified him. But it appeared so unto them, and lo, those who disagree concerning it are in doubt thereof. They have no knowledge thereof, save pursuit of conjecture. They slew him not for certain. See, Islam is a religion without a risen Savior. God had to have a perfect sacrifice. So Jesus Christ had to be God. No one else meets that criteria. But God also had to have a sacrifice, one who redeemed us, who knew us, who totally identified with us. So he had to have a human body. He needed to be a God-man. In all of history, no one else meets that criteria other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There is only one Savior. Islam does not recognize that Savior. They don't recognize the God of the Bible. They don't recognize the Savior of the Bible. In fact, is they say that did not happen. And as I mentioned before, he did not rise from the dead. None of those things happened according to them. And they have various theories of what happened and all that. Uh, that's not what we need to see today. But Islam and Christianity, irreconcilable differences. There is no way you can put the two of them together. It's just oil and water. They will not mix. One last thing. I told you there are other things going on. And I'll do this very quickly. Back in 2007, 138 Muslim leaders wrote a letter, landed up at Yale Divinity uh, School. And uh, there were a number of people who responded, 400 religious leaders from Protestantism and all kinds of other places, responded with a letter that they all signed. 
And I'm, I'm not going to use names. You can go look it up online. This whole thing's online. Uh, you can look it all up and see the signatures and everything else. But they responded. And even those who call themselves evangelicals signed this letter and said things like this. And, and this is just totally disturbing to me. Uh, these are quotes from the letter itself. Before we shake your hand in responding to your letter, we ask forgiveness of the all-merciful one and of the Muslim community around the world. Now, I'm not going to tell you Christians have not done horrible things to Muslims as they have done to Christians. So I have no problem with the second part of that. But when you're asking forgiveness of the all-merciful one, you ever see that in your Bible anywhere? But if you grab a Koran, by the way, you can pull one up online if you don't have one, and you'll find that almost every chapter starts with that phrase. Because here are those that claim Christ, claim the Bible, claim to be evangelical, claim to proclaim the truth, and they're apologizing to a non-existent false god. i got to tell you, you put your name on something like that, Somehow you're either naive or deluded or something. Something isn't right. But it goes on to say a whole lot of other things. Uh, and basically that uh, we have a common ground, and that is because your religion and ours says to love God and love your neighbor. Now, i got to tell you, I already did a real small study on that. Are we talking about the same God? The answer is we absolutely are not talking about the same God. There is no common ground in that. The common ground we have is that all of us are sinners. And where I started is where I finish. If you do love Muslims for whom Christ died, then you will preach the gospel or you will do what you can do to make sure the gospel goes out to those that need to hear the truth. By the way, I don't care if they're Muslims or Jews or agnostics or animists. I don't care. It doesn't matter. People need to hear the good news. And we preach the gospel to them as Paul did to the Jews. We don't compromise it with. We say, here is the truth. We don't join with them in their blindness. Because what happens? The lowest common denominator comes out. Nobody gets saved. Nobody wins. Everybody gets drugged downhill. That's a pretty kind of blunt end of a sermon, but that is exactly the truth. We have the good news, and we need to make sure that with all our life, with our heart, with our money, with our time, with our lives, we need to give that to the propagation of the gospel because it alone gives salvation, forgiveness of sin, a life worth living now, and a heaven, a home worth looking to in the future. Without that, there is no hope. We need to make sure we never compromise with the darkness because the darkness always squishes the light. Let's stand as we close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you are a God that has just been so gracious to us We've sung a number of songs about the